Welcome to this month's installment of Brass Chats, brought to you by Monster Oil. What is this? 21 year? Hi everybody, welcome to this month's installment of Brass Chats. Today, this month, we have a special Brass Chatter for you. He currently teaches trumpet and chamber music at the University of Connecticut, the Juilliard School, and the Aspen Music Festival. He's a member of the American Brass Quintet and the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. He plays in other groups like the Aspen Chamber Symphony, the Orchestra of St. Luke's, the Riverside Symphony, and he's performed on every continent except for Antarctica. Louis Hanslick, thanks for being with us. Absolutely, my pleasure. All right, I wanna know who you learned trumpet from and what they taught you. I know you're a Ray Mace graduate, yep. right, from Juilliard. Yep. So yep. what? Talk, talk to me a little bit about your time with Ray. Well, I studied with Ray primarily at the Aspen Music Festival, actually. Okay. Um, was, uh, was a student at that time at the University of Iowa. And I went to the Aspen Music Festival uh, sort of on a whim. My teacher was encouraging me to get out of Iowa at the time. His name was David Greenhoe and a professor of trumpet at Iowa. Get out of Iowa, you got to see some stuff. So. He told me about summer festivals. I went to Aspen. I met Ray Mace, and um, and uh, he had a you know I talk about a number of teachers, but he in particular had uh, an incredible influence me influence on me with style. I mean, he's an incredibly stylish player. I think anyone would recognize. I was pretty chamber music centric at the time, so I admired like what he was doing professionally uh, with with the brass quintet when he was a member then. And so those are the major influences that he had on me of sort of style of playing and um, or playing stylishly whenever possible and um, setting my sights on being a chamber musician. So how do you do that? How do you set yourself up for a chamber music career? At what point do you say, this is what I want to do? I don't want to be an orchestra player. Um, well, actually, let's come back to that. What I want to know is what draws you to chamber music over, say, being an orchestral player? Well, uh, I think the first thing that, that comes to mind for most, and, and you know, certainly you've played in chamber music groups, you'll, you'll, you'll recognize this, is just you know, the artistic freedom that comes with that particular job, um, to be able to be in a group, make your own artistic choices about what music you want to perform, essentially where you want to perform, um, and what people you want to perform with. And the social component to chamber music is, I would say, much more of a requisite than perhaps playing in ensembles with conductors. I mean, of course, when you're in an ensemble with a conductor, you want to get along with your colleagues. I wouldn't call it a requisite, though. Sure. Right? Uh, in chamber music, it sort of is. Uh, it's, it's high priority, so that you get along with your colleagues. You really have to work out uh, all kinds of details, uh, not only, you know, working with someone to make sure everyone's happy on the tour to Brazil, right, or um, selecting a program everyone can live with or yeah. making a musical decision about a passage. So I think that's, that's what really attracts me most. I like to work in those type of environments uh, in music. Um, my group that I play with, Orpheus, uh, obviously is an orchestra without a conductor. Um, you know, that's another example of a, um, you know, a type of situation that I wouldn't say is for everyone. I mean, I've brought in <coughs> folks to play with Orpheus that have been very honest and said, you know what, that just wasn't for me. Sure. You know, I, I don't want to do that, and and that's totally fine. Uh, it's really not for everyone, especially when you're, you know, uh, when when a career's on the line and it's your day-to-day -day job. And um, so th those are some of the things that really attract me about these 
chamber-oriented environments. And you've yeah. studied that a lot, especially the social element that you were talking about. I mean, yeah. you did your doctoral dissertation. I'm remiss in my uh, my manner of addressing Dr. Lewis Hanley, yes. actually. It is. Uh, <laughs> he graduated from Columbia Teachers College uh, for, his, for his doctorate, am I right? Yeah, so, and, and that's what your dissertation was on, is kind of all these social elements of, you know, uh, what group leadership, where everyone is a leader. There is yeah. no, you know, boss per se, I guess, yep. it's structurally. So can you talk maybe the dust jacket version of your Yeah, absolutely. Of, your thesis, of course, the dissertation is thick, you know, as you might imagine, but I'll try to sum it up. I mean, essentially what I was looking at was, uh, it came from my own experiences. I was, I was a member of the Atlantic Brass Quintet at the time, and we had a, and they still do have an excellent chamber music program in the summers. I was, wasn't teaching at university, but I was coaching uh, in the summertime. And I was coaching groups and felt as though when I'd come into the room, the students, you know, wouldn't say anything. They would look at me for answers, and yeah. I would sort of uh, work with them as if I was a conductor. And I kind of thought to myself, maybe there's something more to this if you're going to teach chamber music. Maybe there's, maybe you need to be a little different, all right? Because what's the purpose of a student being in a chamber music group is to fully experience what's different about chamber music from a larger ensemble. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to look at what possibilities existed or how teachers should be in a chamber music classroom. Should it be different than how we work with large ensembles as a conductor or in a private studio setting one-on-one? -on -one? Should the students be more involved? So it's a, what I found for myself was through the study of observing other coaches and throwing my own ideas at the wall and seeing if they stick was that um, basically um, I think there is room for the coach to certainly give answers. I think I'd be cheating students if I didn't give my opinion. Sure. I think they want it when I coach them, yeah. um, but to also help facilitate them to come up with their own solutions and to be comfortable with their own voice in the room. Okay, so how does the average brass musician get more involved with chamber music? Obviously, we have brass quintets and stuff like that, but I mean, playing with chamber orchestras certainly is not something you really just walk into. So, how do you? How did you get involved with that? There, what opportunities are there to kind of lead you into? You know, honestly, it was all within school, and you know, to having being in a high school, going to when I was in high school, going to summer. I didn't really have a high school brass quintet per se, but I would go to summer camps, and they would always have a chamber music section where you could play in a brass quintet. Um, within college, it gets a little more formalized, right? So you can sign up for chamber music and be in groups, and there are lots right. of people that have, are equal level. So that was that was the way that I really got started. I think what I'd encourage students to do, especially, um, is to remind them that they can start chamber music ensembles that aren't sort of preformed in terms of instrumentation. Like uh, that's always a great place to start, right? You start with a brass quintet yeah. because the music's available, the arrangements are available, and you can plug in and go. Right. But I really push students that have had that initial experience to start mixing it up a little bit. I mean, get a hybrid of a brass quintet and a saxophone, right, and make something go, like a, a trio. Or something so the like first that. obstacle that I think of right there is repertoire. I have repertoire. four friends, and exactly. they all play different exactly. episodes. So, so how the exactly. heck do you overcome that? Where do exactly. You go? Well, you just have to start. I mean, just like the American Brass Quintet started in 1960 or whatever, uh, you know, started asking composers to write pieces. There's nothing available. There was early music. They, they just raked that up and started, you know, playing that. They had to ask composers to write, and I think school's the time. I mean, we always tell, uh, I always tell my students that you know there are, there are student composers here as well. Yeah. You know, you're in class with them. They'd love it if you asked them to write you a piece. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's say we're doing that. I want to start a pickup brass quintet, and it's kind of hard to find repertoire. Where do you start? Do you have any good resources just to? For anybody out there who's looking to start a brass quintet, where's the first place you would go? Well, I mean, this depends. Or the on easiest place, or the most accessible. Yeah, it depends want. on the level, right? Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, a good high school level quintet. High school level quintet. Say, yeah. Okay, well, the first thing I'd say, um, say about that is, first of all, consult with a teacher. My words to teachers are, and to students, make sure you select a piece for the group that's below their technical level. Hmm. I think that's the number one mistake made in chamber music coaching, uh, in my opinion, is that we give the student ensemble a piece that sort of is at their level of technical expertise, maybe even a notch above, and they never get outside of their own parts. They yeah. never get to the point of like, what's the most important reason to play chamber music? And that's to hear your own voice, to develop an opinion, to get into other people's parts outside of your own. So that's my word of advice. No matter what you choose, make sure it's at least a couple of steps below the playing level so you can actually make some music. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into some trumpet brass text, I want to mm -hmm. know, since we're still talking about brass quintets, uh, let's pretend I'm getting into brass quintet and I need your expert advice. Just starting to love the genre. I mean, you play an American brass quintet. I want to hear, including ABQ, mm -hmm. uh, give me your favorite quintet recordings to go listen to, you know, historically or, mm. or even just in the last couple of years, just maybe your top top 10 or something like that. Well, I've got a top one and it's sitting right up there uh, by my LP, my turntable there. Tom's going to get that for us. And I've got a full circle moment to share about that one. So this is Fireworks by the Empire Brass Quintet. Yeah. Uh, it's a really interesting album. I think they incorporated electronics into it for the first time. Some sort of album, Hooked on Bach or something, had come out at the time, and it, it was like synthesizers. Yeah. And this was EMI's response, I think, to that album, which was top of the charts. Could they do that with a brass quintet? Well, I heard that when that album came out, I heard that in Des Moines, Iowa, as a, probably a fifth grader. And I saw Rolf Smedvig and the whole band standing up there on the stage playing that, and then I bought that album afterwards. Um, it was a tape. About two years ago, I got a call. Uh, it was December 26th, I'll remember it vividly, and I picked up my cell phone in the basement, and, and this voice said, um, is this Lewis? And I said, yeah, it's Lewis. He said, this is Rolf Smedvig. Nice. I said, uh, how can I help you, Rolf? I've never spoken to Rolf. Yeah. Right. He said, I need you. I said, okay, what do you need me for? <laughs> Anything. He said, in a couple of weeks, we've got a concert in, in somewhere in Connecticut, the Empire Brass, mid-February. Can you do it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's no rehearsal. We're just going to run it, sound check it, and play the concert. Okay, I'm there. Send me the music. You did it. That was Rolf's last concert, I believe, with the Empire Brass. Wow. And uh, it was a huge moment for me because that album was sitting on the table where there was, he was selling albums after the concert. And I walked to him and like he said, I need you, I said, I need that. Yeah. And I didn't tell him why, but that was a huge inspiration for me. And right. to have that moment was like, whew, blew my mind. Got it. Yeah. All right, so we're picking up Empire Brass. What about yeah. a couple other ones for just yeah. your staples? Well, you know what? I'd encourage any, um, anyone that's interested in, now this relates to brass chamber music because we play it a lot. Uh, if you get Gabrielli, um, that old Philadelphia recording with Chicago and everything is yeah. like uh, kind of just a sonic experience to hear. But I would encourage uh, brass players to check out more of uh, this music on early instruments, on cornets and sackbutts, to get that pure sound of, of how it was performed. And you uh -huh. can probably even find recordings of, of Gabrielli in, you know, in St. Mark's, yeah. you know, to kind of hear that, hear that. I think that would be important. All right. Want some uh, trumpet tips from, uh, from Dr. Lewis Hanslick. So... It's a really general question, but just in terms of the instrument itself, how did you get good at trumpet? What did you, what did you do that really set you on the right path? Uh, two things come to mind 
uh, always when I talk about uh, how I began, uh, my parents <laughs> asked me to practice an hour a day. I was nine years old. and um, That's a big ask. That was, it was a big ask. I, I don't know how I did it, and I'm sure I fought like crazy, yeah. like my son does, who's 10, and he's playing guitar and horn. Horn? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, come on. <laughs> What's wrong with that guy? <laughs> Just kidding. Is, is it Ethan? Masochist. Masochist? <laughs> Yeah, that's masochistic. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah. Ethan. Ethan. Uh, but anyway, it's just sitting down with Ethan and just getting him to, to do that, um, sit and play. But it was that, and uh, I don't know really how it was, but, but I remember um, that, and I had a, they found me the best teacher they could in Des Moines, Iowa. He's principal trumpeter of the Des Moines Symphony. Mm -hmm. His name was Tom Tressler. And uh, between having that really great regular instruction balanced with just playing consistently, which we all know is so important with brass, that you just hit it as much as, you know, hit it daily. You know, yeah. um, I developed skill immediately. You know, I could play. I remember the day it happened. I could hit a high C in the fourth grade. Wow. I haven't gone much higher. Sure. But I could hit that high. I could hit that high C. He freaked out. He told my dad. My dad freaked out. And I thought, is that a big deal? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's cool. Yeah. Right. And then it just starts to spiral. But I think that. My parents just keeping things structured and, and uh, making sure I hit it every day. Uh, eventually, by the eighth grade, I started to practice on my own, and that's when it, that's when I really, the bug bit me. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if you, well, first of all, do you have a daily routine I that do. you stick to now? Yeah, I wouldn't call it a routine in terms of same things, but I try to do certain things every day. Absolutely. Can you talk about some of those? What what might you do? Well, I get in a <clears throat> warm up. Uh, I try to keep pretty concise. You know, I think we've all, as professionals, been put in a spot where we didn't get a warm-up, but we had to perform. Sure. Uh, when I was a, a student, I had a period where I had I did a certain routine every day with a teacher. That was important for me at the time, but I can't do that anymore. So I certainly just uh, have a warm-up at least 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes. Um, I sort of just get some get my response going with some light air attacks, usually through like a buzzing and then into like a Chickowitz sort of mm -hmm. scale study. Then I'll play some stamp exercises and then I'll um, get my fingers in, in articulation moving with some scales and I try to do major minor uh, whole tone scales I really try to mix it up do different modes and I just go around the circle of force and I slur and then I tongue and I slur and I tongue and I just get that flow yeah. happening um, always in my day I've got a, a period of time and I usually don't practice beyond a 45 minute chunk but I play constantly for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. It simulates sort of what I have to do in the brass quintet. Yep. Yeah, a half. Um, so what I like to do is I have that 45-minute window where I'm working on music that's up for the next brass quintet recital or, or performance with Orpheus or a solo or something, and I try to hit as much repertoire as I can in that span. So right now is like the John Zorn brass quintet that we have to learn and the recital repertoire for next week, which I've done two or three times, but I like to keep blowing through it. Yeah. So there's that current repertoire period. Uh, I tried to get another 30-minute chunk in of etude practice. Mm -hmm. I think that's good for endurance. Right now I'm doing verm etudes, I'm doing uh, the Nagel Contemporary Studies, and I'm doing always doing the Chickowitz sort of slurred etudes. Okay. And I do, I'll, I'll hit those, and I try to do etudes like three or four at a time, and then I move on. Yeah. I, I keep a checklist in my etudes and just nice. re I repeat them. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I'm wondering now, I mean, you talked about some of the things I'm hoping we can kind of compartmentalize. I want yep. to create a hands-like quick reference guide right. to let's just, I'm going to give you the category and you can say 
what's your go-to to check in with that and to improve it just in terms of yourself okay. sort of teaching in yep. your practice room. Yep. So let's talk about sound. What's your go-to for sound to check in with your own sound? Um, how am I breathing in and releasing? Okay. How responsive is the aperture? Okay. Yeah. There's a yeah. couple of physical exercises to do there. And honestly, just slow scales. Slow scales. Slurred. Okay. Yep. How about clear articulation? Clear articulation. Um, it's kind of the same thing with the aperture, probably. Yeah, that's why I slur and then tongue usually in in succession. Okay. Because uh, I think um, I think good articulation is getting to the vowel as quickly as possible. Uh huh. Got it. <laughs> you know, so that's why I do that. But I love the Arben's first studies for mm -hmm. articulation. Just simple, basic stuff. I do those almost every day. Yeah. Yeah. Do you what's your what's your go-to vowel in that register for the first the first studies? You said getting to the vowel quickly. What vowel? Uh, you know, it's co uh, common for us is aw. Sure, off yeah. for you. Yep. All right. Uh, how about multiple tonguing? What's your go-to for that? Arben's book. Arben. Arben's book. Also, there's a section in the uh, Nagel rhythmic studies. There's little etudes he's written in the Nagel. You know Bob? You know those Nagel Bob Nagel books? But, yeah, uh, I've seen yeah. them. I don't have them. Yeah, yeah. I wish I did. The uh, there's good at good triple tonguing exercises in there, but I th don't think you can beat the Arben's triple tonguing and double tonguing. Uh, endurance. Endurance. Um, playing through etudes. Top to bottom. Top to bottom. And I think, or in my case, actually, uh, endurance is, a, is the biggest concern with the brass quintet. So playing through a half is very helpful. Um, it's a luxury to get, and I think etudes fit well for that. Mm -hmm. It's a luxury to get five measures of rest in any point in a brass quintet, as you know, through our programs especially. So um, that's the kind of training I have to put myself in, put myself through. I can't, I'm not really, a, I can't expect myself to be a sprinter. I have to go for some long distance. So this is more of a selfish question. Sometimes yep. I craft it with everyone else in mind. This one's for me. Yep. Endurance is a big, big thing for me. How do you deal with that? With with five measures off is a luxury. Yep. Um, you know, throughout a piece, and maybe it's a couple beats at a time or something like that. But yeah. I mean, some people have different embouchure struggles when endurance happens. Sometimes your embouchure collapses. Sometimes the sound just stops happening. That's my favorite, yep. like you know, trick in my bag is yep. just yep. nothing happens. Yep. So how do you? address that how do you play longer when when it's you feel it about to go and you're yeah. losing it is it yeah. is it making a breathing map is it figuring out how you breathe to get that more efficient what what helps you with, with I think endurance? you can't I think you can't discount with endurance learning how to play through the piece and that's mm -hmm. why I feel like after a premiere of a brass quintet the second performance the third performance the fourth performance gets better and better gets and better. better. You just learn how to play it. You mm -hmm. sort of learn where the landmines are. And whether you're thinking about it or not, you know when to back off and really when to lay into it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's part of it. I think another part is, and of those interested in building endurance, I think there's, um, there's something to be said for not practicing to the point of exhaustion. Because if you don't know what it feels like to get tired, how are you going to get tired? Sure. I mean, I really believe in that. So I always tell my students, I don't know if they do it. I mean, I didn't do it, certainly. I, I beat myself up in the practice room. Yeah. Uh, admittedly, I practice a lot, but I was always beat up. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you're working on a piece, not to take yourself to that point uh, of exhaustion, but to always stop when you're still feeling fresh is a good confidence booster. I think we've all experienced when we're starting to feel tired, your brain turns on, says I'm tired, and then it's like And then you grab you're and then off. it's done. Yeah. You're gone, whereas right. if you wouldn't have said that in the first place. So I think uh -huh. a lot of it is here, certainly here as well. But there's some training you can do to really help yeah. with that. Okay. Uh, how about intonation? Uh, intonation, I love drones. Yeah. Yeah, I love playing against just drones um, and just judging all intervals of a scale 
based on a, a set drone. I usually am playing with the drone uh, during my initial 15, 20 minutes in the mornings. Nice. Also duets. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, how about getting comfortable in the high range? Not necessarily, or extending it. All trumpet players want to know how to play higher. But. I think one thing that's uh, often overlooked is tongue position with high range. Mm -hmm. And I think that's uh, something that, that's not the only solution. Um, uh, but uh, tongue position, and then I was just speaking to a group of students about, um, they were having troubles, the part of the passage had to go from G to A. G-A-G-A mm -hmm. -A -A on top of the staff. Yep. I said, don't you all feel like the distance between those two notes is just here Super to here, far, yeah. right? Um, what can we do to lower that? Because I think once you lower that, that intonation and where it sits on your lip, mm -hmm. G to A, and you can do that by third valve A or what is it, second valve A, gives you a really flat one. Mm -hmm. You play scale studies with a second valve A that bridge that, then there's a chance you're going to start to place it lower, and I think that can unlock the upper register. Ah, it's okay. just a couple of thoughts. But I think tongue position especially, uh, there's not enough arch of the tongue in, in a, to get into the E or ich syllables. Okay. How about low range? Um, well, I mean, I think I, for, I do a lot of stamp exercises for that to get, to get control of, uh, of the lower register. But again, I think uh, I've had a lot of success with students that aren't comfortable they maybe are a little too tight, they can't loosen up to play those low notes, starting in a place where they're very comfortable, like a middle G, and playing descending scale patterns to just touch to touch it and mm -hmm. bring it back, and then go a little lower and bring it back. There's no quick, easy solution, as you know, and usually it's slower than most people want, but if the student can have patience, usually, generally, it would be high notes or low notes. If you can start your pattern in a place that's, that's very, very comfortable for you, say your best note, and then touch the challenging part and return, you might do a little better than just trying to hit the high notes all the time or just attack the low notes all the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how about soft playing? Um, What's your go-to to work on for like soft poo, playing? Like poo attacks or pee attacks okay. response. All right. Yeah, with a metronome and just attacking with the lip so it just vibrates right when you want it to. Yeah. yeah. Do you warm down? Uh, usually not. Why? Uh, usually I want to pack up my horn and go home. <laughs> You're done. You're mentally done. Cool. Toast. Yeah. Uh, all right. Totally changing tech here. What's the meanest thing you ever said to a student in a lesson? I had a lot of mean things said to me that impacted me, so maybe I should be meaner. But, what, were uh, what were they? Yeah, what were they? That's my well, next question. Well, the first actually. thing that, that was really said to me um, when I came to New York and studied with Gould at, at Juilliard, he was my teacher when I was there, the first lesson, I think I brought in a Bichet tube and I just blew it down and was like, yeah. To myself when Nailed I it. it. Nailed yeah. it. Then I did something else. Yeah. And he just stopped and looked at me and he said, you sound like you're from Iowa. <laughs> That's such a gold comment. That sounds like gold. And yeah. all I could think was, well, I am. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that even mean? What does that mean? <laughs> anyway. So you went home and practiced how to not sound like you're from Iowa? Yeah. Yeah. He didn't tell me how not to sound like that, but you know. You know the Monster Round. Uh, for those of you who don't, shame on you, but it's a stream of consciousness thing. We're going to ask some questions, and just the first thing that comes to mind, there's no pressure. I think in mine, I said my favorite band was Steely Dan, and I have to live with that. I like Steely Dan a lot, <laughs> but upon further reflection, my favorite band is the Presidency of the United States of America. Uh, but anyway, no backsies, <laughs> even though I just did one, but hey, privileged. Okay, here we go. Monster Round, Lewis Hanslick. Yep. Here it is. How many pairs of shoes do you own? Uh, four. What? How? That's so few. <laughs> How many trumpets do you own? 
About eight. What's the highest note you can nail every day? Concert C. What's your favorite food? Bacon. What location have you not performed at that's at the top of your to-go-to list? Africa. What's the favorite performance your whole life that you were a part of? First performance with the American Brass Quintet. If you could go back in history, any concert throughout history, and be sitting in the audience for it, what would it be? Miles Davis at the Fillmore. What's your favorite non-chocolate candy? Caramel. What is your favorite way to get exercise? Biking. Favorite place to play the trumpet? Carnegie Hall. One career for Lewis Hanslick that is not trumpet, what would it have been? Barista. Barista. All right. Uh, one dead trumpet player. Pick one dead trumpet player to help you re-roof your house. Hersus. <laughs> that is a good choice. I bet he would know exactly how to do you that. Know what to do. Um, all right. Please assemble for me your dream brass quintet from history, and so nobody's feelings get hurt. <laughs> no current ABQ members are allowed. Oh, okay. Living dead, everybody. Living dead. Okay. Um, well, not living. Not, not, not living, living dead. dead. Okay. <laughs> Let's start uh, randomly. Uh, John Manning Tuba. Rolf Smedvig. Uh, Ray Mace. Two Boston boys. Um, oh, my goodness. Another former colleague. Is this okay? Yeah. Tim Albright, trombone. Awesome. Yeah. And um, horn. Dave Wakefield. Solid. All right, you have a son and a daughter. What's your favorite father-son activity? Uh, throwing the football. What's your favorite father-daughter activity? Uh, watching movies. Uh, are there any instruments? I know we talked about your son plays some instruments already. Are there any instruments your kids will be forbidden to play? Saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> if our trumpet sound is a soup that is assembled from ingredients individually, mm -hmm. what's your soup made out of? Whose other sound is it made out of? So your influences, I guess. Oh, my influences. Well, my teachers, Ray Mason, Mark Gould, and... Uh, and David Greeno, too, for the fact he was so thoughtful about equipment he chose. Would you rather be a shark? This is a life philosophy question. Would you rather be a shark but only live to five years old? Or would you rather be one of those on-the-bottom Heidi fish, but, like, you know, they come out of the sand and then they eat their things as they go by, but live to be 100? Oh, boy, the shark. Shark. Yeah. Wow. Dr. Lewis Hanslick, yeah. thanks for Thank being you. on uh, Brass Chats with us. Absolutely.